Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Kelly A. Turner and host Michael Lerner, co-presented with CancerChoices.org. Welcome, everybody. I am Kira Epstein. As Michael said, I'm the program coordinator at the New School of Commonweal. And today we welcome author and docuseries producer Kelly Turner to the New School to talk with our host and director, Michael Lerner. A conversation we're uh, co-presenting today with Commonweal's Cancer Choices program. So thanks for joining. We are recording the conversation and we'll have produced audio and video files available. They'll be on our website and also on the Cancer Choices website. And you can also find all of our recordings on SoundCloud, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. With that, I will turn things over to Michael again. Thanks for joining us at the New School of Commonweal. Thank you, Kira. Kelly, welcome to the New School and to cancerchoices.org. I'm so honored and delighted to have you. I'm so happy to be here, Michael, and to be speaking with you, especially because I've been seeing a lot of you doing the docuseries editing. Um, I'm just, I'm so grateful you agreed to be filmed for the docuseries. The, for those of you listening, the wisdoms of nugget, the the nuggets of wisdom that Michael shares in the docuseries are, are just deeply touching to the soul. And I think they'll be helpful to so many. So thank you, Michael, for being in the docuseries. Well, thank you, Kelly. And as you know, our friend and colleague Cynthia Lee is among those uh, on the webinar today. And uh, Cynthia is a a very dear friend of many years. And uh, she is one of those uh, featured in your docuseries of Radical Remissions. And the special thing about this is that I actually witnessed Cynthia's Radical Remission. Uh, So uh, just as a a close friend, just watched her go through the process. So uh, it's one thing to know in the abstract that people get radical remissions. It's quite different when you have a friend who actually experiences that. Absolutely. Hi, Cynthia. I'm so excited you're listening today. And I hope you'll chime in later. It's, uh, It's wonderful to have you both on. Wonderful. So, uh, Kelly, let's just start at the beginning. I mean, you are an extraordinary resource in the field. And arguably, I would say, uh, if I had to pick one person who has done the most for understanding radical remissions uh, in cancer and other diseases, you would be hands down that person. You are the best selling. Thank you. Yeah, well, just true. You're the best-selling author of Radical Remission and Radical Hope, now in 22 languages, which summarize your research into radical remissions when someone heals from cancer or another serious illness in a statistically unlikely way, such as without conventional medicine or after conventional medicine has failed. And over the last 15 years, you've done research in 10 countries, analyzed 1,500 cases of radical remission. You're often on the Dr. Oz show. Uh, You graduated from Harvard with a PhD from Berkeley. You have adopted your book into a feature-length screenplay, Open-Ended Ticket, which was a finalist for Sundance. Uh, And you've created... Uh, most important in some ways, along with your books, uh, this docu-series, which 
explores each of the 10 healing factors from your research and features many radical remission survivors. Now, Kelly, my understanding is that that uh, docu-series is uh, at a special point, right? It's going into a new life. Can you tell us about that? It is. I'm super excited about it because I um, filmmaking has always been my deepest love and my deepest goal and my deepest dream. And when I first met my first radical mission survivor, when I sat down across from him and did that interview, I said, other people need to see this man. Other people need to meet him and, you know, have him come into their living room the way I'm in, in his living room. And so I've always wanted, before I wanted to write the books, I actually wanted to, you know, make this docuseries and also make a feature film about it. Um, so to have the docuseries finally come to fruition is, um, it just, it's such a, feeling of completion for me because really the, um, the people who need to be known are the survivors, right? Like I'm just a messenger. I'm just the researcher who's observing them, but the, the real stars of the show and the real miracles are the radical remission survivors. So I'm just so glad that the people will get to really meet and see and feel these survivors, um, through the docuseries, including Cynthia, who is Cynthia Lee on the call here, who's so vulnerably, shared her entire story. And, and that's the thing when you're doing a documentary and you sit down and you, you interview someone about their healing journey, it's going to get personal, right? It's going to get emotional and vulnerable. And I'm just so grateful that these 21 survivors that we featured opened up their hearts and were brave enough to be public about, you know, the emotional roller coaster of a healing journey. So it's, it's beautiful. And the docuseries um, had sort of a beta screening in March, 2020, uh, two and a half years ago. If anyone remembers what was happening in the world around then, it was a pretty crazy time. Uh, our The beta screening started March 16th and the United States kind of went into lockdown March 15th. So we actually had a record number of people watch that beta screening, which was fantastic because we got, you know, incredible feedback and, um, you know, I think a lot of people really needed to see it during that time, but then Hay House, the executive producer of the docuseries, their sort of model is to, you know, put it up for 10 days and then take it down and, and have it kind of disappear for a while. Um, and we know with cancer patients, you can't do that, right? Because someone's diagnosed with cancer every single day. And so we've been getting, uh, my organization has been getting emails for the past two and a half years being like, where's the docuseries? Where is it? Where is it? I want to see it. And I'm very happy to say that um, we've, we've polished it. It's it, in my mind, it's fully finished now. It's as beautiful as I can make it. And Hay House has agreed to launch it starting next Monday forever. They're not going to take it down anymore. So it will always be up and available for people to see. And the, the website is radicalremissiondocuseries.com. Well, I think that's incredibly important, Kelly. And I mean, as you know, I've been researching and exploring uh, integrative cancer therapies for over 30 years. And, um, and we've done 216 week-long cancer health programs um, over uh, the last 36 years. My book, Choices in Healing from MIT Press, uh, integrating the best of conventional and complementary approaches to cancer really, with all due respect, was a, a breakthrough event because it was at that point, right? Nobody 
it was all considered quackery, you know, but that was the book that got good reviews in the New England Journal of Medicine and JAMA and the New Scientist and so on. So, and then Brendan O'Regan's work, which you very well know, uh, when he did this extraordinary uh, piece of work on uh, spontaneous remissions and searched the whole medical literature for cancer remission stories. Uh, so your work, to my mind, uh, takes Brendan's work and just takes it to a whole new level. And you, well, you brought it. You brought the issue uh, public in a way that can't be marginalized. Yes, hopefully I've, I have made it public, but I do want to just give the deepest gratitude to um, Brendan and Carol Hirschberg, Brendan O'Regan and Carol Hirschberg for putting out that huge volume in 1985. It was through the Institute, Institute of Noetic Sciences, and you can still access it today on the IONS website. And it's a wonderful resource of you know, the 1,000 cases that were published in medical journals of spontaneous remission from 1895 to 1985. So you've got 80 years, uh, sorry, 90 years of publications. And really medical journals sort of started in the 1890s. So from the start of when we started publishing peer-reviewed medical journal articles, we were publishing cases of spontaneous remission. The doctors had no idea why these occurred. And it's such a beautiful feat that... Um, Brandon and Carol did put finding those over 1000 cases, putting them together, because if it weren't for them, I would not have been able to get approval for my dissertation. I, I explained to my professors at UC Berkeley, I want to study this phenomenon that doctors can't explain and that no one has any hypotheses for. And they said, well, what do you mean you want to study something that no one's studying? You know, you, you can't really do that. And then I like plopped this, you know, the book is this thick, that big yeah, book. You have it. And I plopped it on my advisor's desk and I said, there are 1,000 peer-reviewed medical journal articles about this phenomenon. And I just want to take this research deeper. And as soon as she saw that, she's like, oh, okay. So you're not like the first first. <laughs> and I said, no. I, so I really owe it a lot to um, Brendan O'Regan and Carol Hirschberg for making that compendium of the 1,000 cases. You know, just as a personal note, Brendan was a very dear friend, and I have a, a photo of him right at the top of my uh, bed on my bedside table in my study, in my, the bed in my study. And interestingly enough, um, we kind of go into other realms from the start here. Uh, over the last year or two, I've had more and more a sense of uh, access to my dead. And the first person that I had access to, which actually way predates this sense of increasing access, was Brendan. And so, I, yeah. And so I've always been able to just bring Brendan into consciousness. Now we can ask, is this just an intra-psychic event that Michael made up for himself? And maybe so. Uh, but my experience is that uh, this access is real. And actually, from having done 216 cancer health programs, I know I'm far from alone in the sense of having access to our dead and a sense that, uh, you know, being incarnated in a human form is not necessarily the only uh, experience of consciousness. So, by the way, I just want to ask you, uh, since we're going to talk, what is your uh, sense of whether uh, 
death is the end or whether it's a mystery or whether you personally believe there's something after death? Um, well, that's that's definitely more of a personal question as opposed to a radical remission question, but I'm happy to answer it. Yeah, please do. But, but the answer is coming from my person, not from my right. radical remission yeah. research. Right. Um, personally, I um, absolutely believe in the continuation of the soul or the spirit after death. Um, that's uh, that's just something that I've believed in ever since I was uh, in a car accident when I was 13 and I had a near-death experience. So it's not something I talk about publicly. It's not something that comes into my research or, you know, biases my research. But, um, you know, I think having that near, near-death experience at 13, and I actually didn't make sense of it until I was 22 and was, uh, I had sort of written it off as this dream that I had during, while the car was flipping over two times. And I was kind of embarrassed about the dream because it was, it was incredibly powerful to me. Um, and it was a classic near-death experience, but I didn't know that at the time I had never heard of, I was 13 years old. I'd never heard of that word. Um, and I was actually describing it to my boyfriend at the time who's now my husband, my life partner when we were 22, um, because I'd written a paper about it for a, a class where we were, we were commenting on the death of Ivan Illich and we were, we had to write a personal response. So I ended up writing about this near-death experience for the first time, which I didn't call a near-death experience. And, um, the teaching assistant, the TA at Harvard kept hounding me and hounding me to share the story with the rest of the class. And I was like, I'm not going to share this crazy dream with the class. And I almost felt like he was going to give me a, a worse grade for not publicly speaking about this. And so I, I went back to our dorm room and I was complaining to my boyfriend and he's like, well, what is this paper about? What is this dream? And he's like, I told him the dream. And he said, that's a classic near-death experience. And I said, a near-death what? Like, what are you talking about? And he went to his bookshelf because he's, um, you know, very, very metaphysical and was studying comparative religion and all that stuff. And he pulled out um, Raymond's Moody, Raymond Moody's book, the, his famous uh, medical thesis, right. Which I think is light after life was the book. Right. And that's, you know, that was like a seminal book on near-death experiences. And so here I am at 22 and having really never heard the word. And I read this book and it was like reading my diary. It was like reading a, a description of the dream that I had during the car accident. So that really sent me in my 20s onto a, a really deep spiritual exploration of near-death experiences and um, this idea of, you know, uh, the continuation of the soul after the death of the body, whether that's, you know, studies of reincarnation and lots of other things. So I've been very curious and very open to all of this because of that um, near-death experience that I had when I was 13. And when I was in grad school at UC Berkeley, and I was working with pediatric cancer patients at one point, and my colleague, uh, sorry, my classmate turned to me and said, I, how do you do that? How do you, how do you work with kids who are dying? And I just said, huh, I wonder why it doesn't bum me out. I wonder why it just makes me feel so good to help them or to be of service to them. And I said, you know, well, maybe, maybe it helps that I'm not at all afraid of death. And she looked at me like, she, like I, you know, didn't make any sense to her. And she's like, well, how can you say that? And I said, well, it's a long story, but anyway, I'm not afraid of death. And then I turned to her and I said, but Hey, how are you okay working with rape victims every day? Right. We were in social work school together. 
And I said, how can you possibly get through the day with that? And she said, oh, well, it's easy. I'm a rape survivor and I'm strong now and I'm fine. And it, it doesn't define my life and I don't have to be afraid every moment. And so, and I realized, oh, like whatever we are survivors of, that's what we can, you know, be with other people in those situations because we've, we've been through it. And because I, I had that near-death experience and had this real experience of the other side that was for me so beautiful and so you know, just like the absolute opposite of fear. Um, it allows me to drop that fear of death and sit with people when they're facing it and, and stay with them for hours and hours and not, not, you know, run away and be scared of it. If that makes sense. Oh, Kelly, thank you. I, would, would you consider telling us the, the story, the dream, the experience? I would, I would be happy to. Do you think it's, it's relevant uh, to the radical remission? Can I tell you something, Kelly? This is the best. Okay. It's when we, as you just talked about your series and the willingness of the people in your series to be open and vulnerable, and I'm happy to be open and vulnerable. I often am. Uh, I, actually, when I talked about Brendan's uh, photo and being able to access my dad, I would adore to hear this story because this is the kind of conversation that I love. Well, Michael, it's your show, so I will answer your questions. Yep, I, I hope the Radical Remission listeners uh, tuning in aren't disappointed that we've taken a left turn. But well, anyway. We're going to get back to Radical Remissions. But just blame it on Michael, everybody. Blame it on me. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, in a nutshell, I, I had what Raymond Moody assured me is, is not some crazy dream, but a classic near-death experience. So, um my mom was driving me to piano lessons and we lived out in rural Wisconsin. So we were on a highway going 55 miles an hour and it was dusk and we hit a deer. And so the car flipped over twice and then landed thankfully right side up. Um, but during the two flips, which was probably five seconds, I had what felt like at least an hour long experience. So, um, like most near death experiences, the, uh, the concept of time gets very weird <laughs> and very fluid. So um, I basically had this sensation of uh, kind of like a reverse roller coaster where instead of going down a hill, you're, you're going up a hill. And so I was, I was sucked out of my body. <laughs> uh, my, the energy or my soul, whatever you want to call it. Um, my consciousness was sucked out of my body in a way that my stomach dropped, right? Like it felt like I was on a reverse roller coaster. And then I was um, watching the accident and the scene from probably like, I want to say like a hundred feet up, like pretty high, like, well, maybe five stories, five stories up watching the whole thing. And um, I was uh, joined by an energy. It wasn't uh, my grandmother. It wasn't Jesus. It was just an energy. It was incredibly loving. It was neither male nor female. And it was just a, it was almost like a, a glowing light on my right-hand side. And it, uh, it came to be with me and it was incredibly peaceful. You know, I, I was a pretty uh, high-strung 13-year-old. I had, was a nail biter. I was a straight-A student. I was, I was anxious. And I don't think I had ever experienced uh, a complete lack of fear, especially while I'm watching a car accident that I know my body is part of. 
So it was, it was kind of hard to believe how lovingly fearless I felt. I just felt, I felt completely fine. And I felt comforted by this presence that was there, this light. Um, and anyway, let me just speed this up because this could take a while. I'll just fast forward to please, say that. <laughs> don't feel, we have time. Okay. Um, this is important. So let's just give it, and you haven't done this before, I think. So let's just give this the time that it, it wants. Okay. Yeah. Um, the presence uh, next to me started showing me every minute of my life from this this life and it was sort of like watching a movie in fast forward mm-hmm. and it was just sort of like flipping in all these memories and it was like boom 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 but even though they were being flipped in it's almost like I was watching a movie they were being shown to me so quickly um it's like every single one of them made me smile I was like oh yeah that oh yeah that you know And then every once in a while, the presence would stop the movie and it would, it it would go from fast forward to like slow motion. And I would actually relive the memory. Um, But when I relived the memory, I could feel the, um, the deep emotion of everyone involved in that memory. And so, for example, uh, one of the first memories that he stopped at, I I say he, because I, I don't know. It, it felt it felt more of like a male presence, but anyway, the energy stopped stopped me uh, at a memory when I was three years old, and I whacked my twin sister on the back because I was so mad at her. <laughs> and I remember, and so I felt that anger of that three year old having a tantrum. She'd you know taken my toy or something, and so I felt my own anger again. I'm like, oh yeah, that was intense anger. And then as soon as I slapped her, I became her and I felt the pain in her back. And I felt, and I felt the shock and the sadness of being, you know, hit by your sister. And so I suddenly was feeling everything at once, right? Mm -hmm. I was feeling the, um, the consequences of my actions and the presence didn't say, you see how you shouldn't have done that. The presence just said, what do you make of this now? And I was like, oh, I was so angry at her, but look at all the pain I just caused her. Like, it's it's more like the pain caused more pain. And the presence said, okay, good. And then fast forward, fast forward, fast forward. And then it stopped at a moment in elementary school that I'm very embarrassed about to this, to this day, which is when I cheated on a very big uh, school-wide competition. Um, I lied about how many books I had read. I wanted to win the competition. And he, by by slowing it down, I was able to feel the disappointment of every other student in my school who had lost because I had won. And the presence said, well, what do you make of that? And I was like, oh, that was so silly to, to you know, lie about this, to get a small little victory for me. And then look at all the pain and suffering, really, that I caused all of these people. So it, it was really like learning through learning through experience, as opposed to a teacher telling you, you shouldn't have done that. It was like the learning was obvious because as soon as I could experience the ripple effect of my actions with everyone else, and as if I were in their own shoes and in their own hearts, it just became instantly clear, like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. (laughs) That was stupid. Um, 
So, it, and then, it, you know, it also, the presence would also stop at moments of great joy, you know, like it stopped at this moment of my whole family, you know, swimming together and, and, and I could feel the joy of every single one of my family members. And the presence said, what do you make of that? And I said, that's joy. That's, that's love. And he, and he said, yeah. And then it fast forward, fast forward, fast forward. And then there were two coffins dropping down into the ground. And I was like, oh, I died. My mom and I just died. That's our funeral. And um, I should say before we got to that, everything, everything was sort of happening at once. I was also able to see like 10 miles away. Um, I was able to see and hear. I actually sort of was my piano teacher picking up the phone and getting the call saying they wouldn't be coming to, to the lesson. And my sister who was there would need a ride home. And I also was the ambulance driver and I, I became the ambulance driver who came to the scene. I was and became the, the farmhouse uh, owner woman who looked out and saw the, the accident and called, thankfully called 911. And I also became the deer. I also felt the deer, the deer run away injured and the deer's heart was beating and the deer was very scared. And the, also the deer was in terrible pain. Um, so I, I knew everything. I saw my dad get the call miles away and get in his, his car and rush over. And I, I felt everything and I knew everything surrounding the accident. It was like, it was like I had become Superman or superhuman, you know, like I, I knew everything and I felt everything and yet I wasn't scared. But it was it was intense to feel all of that at once. It was intense. It's sort of like, you know, taking your car and flooring it, right? And like pushing your car as fast as it has ever gone. You know, I definitely felt my system was like, whoa, this is a lot to handle. Um, and then and then we were doing the the life review, and then and then we got to the image of the end, which was the coffins. And I had this as the coffins were lowering and I saw my dad and my sisters and brother, like all crying. And I was very detached. I wasn't sad. I said, it just, it just suddenly made sense. I'm like, oh, we just died in that accident. That's what happened. And then the tape stopped, like as if, as if the presence had pressed pause. And then this boy, the voice of the presence said to me, uh, it could end like that, but there's more for you to do. So we're putting you back in. And then before I could even say, huh, <laughs> what? I was pulled very forcefully down into my body. Um, and I had that uh, roller coaster feel again where your stomach drops. Um, very forcefully, very quickly down into my body. And at that moment, the car stopped uh, flipping. And I looked over at my mom and I just said, mommy. And I, and I felt up on my head and there was blood everywhere. And I was in pain. I was in physical pain. And I was terrified, <laughs> not by the dream. I was terrified of having been in an accident. So it's almost like I was put back into my body and all the bliss and fearlessness went away. And I was back to being a human who was, you know, scared of having been in an accident. So that was it. That was the, that was that was the experience. Oh, Kelly. Do you mind? This is something I do when somebody has done something really powerful. Can we just take a moment of quiet together? Just oh, absolutely. 
You're listening to a TNS conversation with Kelly A. Turner and host Michael Lerner. Peace, peace. Mm-hmm. Kelly, that's so beautiful. You know, this is what I live for. I live for conversations like this. You mm-hmm. know, this is what we do, I'm sure you know, in the Cancer Health Program. It's when people, when we get real with each other, right? And as you did in your incredible docu-series, you know, you're incredible, that your participants got real about what life was about. So um, so that's just extraordinary. So that leads clearly to um, the next question, which is, has this experience informed your life and is it connected in some way with your global consciousness work, I'll call it, uh, that you've done um, through uh, radical remissions and radical hope? In other words, is there a connection for you? I'm not speaking of empirically in the science world, but for your spirit, for your being, mm-hmm. between that experience Meeting your husband, he is a student of metaphysical things. I can imagine that there's an ongoing conversation about these aspects of life that go beyond radical remissions. Uh, So in your inner world, is there a grounding of your outer work in this experience and the emergent uh, sense of the, the nature of reality? Well, um, I think certainly the reason I was able to do this research and the reason I was able to go for my master's in counseling cancer patients in the first place is because of that near-death experience. But like I said, I didn't quite even put the pieces together until I was 22, but it did allow me to, you know, one of the first things I did after reading that book was start volunteering with pediatric cancer uh, patients at Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York. So Reading that book and then also reading um, some other books about reincarnation in my early 20s really cracked open my idea of, you know, the idea of a soul and the idea of why we're here in these bodies, what the whole point of being on earth is uh, for me personally. And it did really, like I say, because it took away this fear of death in such a such a profound way, you know, like even my husband, um, you know, he, he has read all of these books and, and he, he practices meditation and he's even had some out-of-body experiences during meditation, but not like what I had. And so for him, he'll say, you know, you're, you're so certain, but there's still a part of him that's, you know, skeptical of like, well, what if, what if none of this that I'm reading is true? And I can't, I can't say that. I'm like, well, I just know it's true. Like, I just like, when you have an experience like the one I had, and I've talked to some other people, you know, sort of quietly at dinner parties, we we sort of stumble across the fact that we both had near-death experiences. And when you meet someone who's had a near-death experience, it really, it becomes unequivocal, this idea of absolutely there's something beautiful that happens when you, when you're pulled out of your body, when your consciousness is, when your energy is. So I, I certainly um, was able to go into the work of working with cancer patients fearlessly because of, of that experience. And I'm grateful for that. I'm really grateful for that. It, and it also, it also 
informs, you know, the, the directions I take and the projects I want to take on and the things I say no to, and the things that, that I say yes to, you know, I often say yes to things that, that open my heart, you know, and when I say yes to something that I actually, my heart doesn't really want to do, but I feel like I should do. Um, I've learned that doesn't ever lead to much great of anything. So, yeah, I would say the, just the knowledge of the fact that, you know, I call it the soul survives the, the end of the physical body and, um, goes on to a, a very powerful, beautiful, loving, fearless existence. It does allow me to, um, you know, take a lot of risks. I would say in my, in my career, I think that, uh, the 13-year-old Kelly who, before the accident, was planning... Let me just say, the 13-year-old Kelly before that accident was planning to be a lawyer <laughs> so that I could use my mind to support my family and make a good living and you know, do justice in the world. And there's nothing wrong with being a lawyer, by the way. But that's not actually what my heart wanted to do. My heart wanted to find powerful stories and tell them and share them and write them and you know, direct them in films uh, but my heart was like, well, that's scary because that's not a W-2 paycheck. Mm-hmm. So oh, because, because of the near-death experience, I can come back to, okay, hold on. It's not just about, you know, daily survival and money in a bank account. We are energy beings and we will be zipped out of these bodies at some, some point, And maybe we'll be zipped back in, or maybe we won't, maybe we'll be zipped into another body. But there's more going on here than just providing for your family and being, mm. you know, quote unquote, responsible. There, There is a heart energy that I try to stay connected to personally so that I can uh, do things that light me up. And and I would say that I would say that's how it's affected me. No, that's so powerful. Well, thank you for that. And now uh, with that informing but we may dance in and out of the personal and and the uh and the work um uh, i'd like to turn to what you've learned from all your work on radical remissions and in that let me offer my experience and ask you to contrast yours yeah in the cancer health program uh I often say that our intention is to help people live as well as they can for as long as they want. And if and when the time comes to die, to die the way they would like to die. That's sort of, you know, and yeah, and absolutely your nine and now 10, uh, you know, uh, principles for for uh, working on radical remission is so close to our seven healing practices on cancerchoices.org. So we're profoundly aligned on that. But the place I'd really like to start is that when uh, in the Cancer Health Program, uh, I talk about radical remissions, I say radical remissions are very real. Uh, And, you know, Brennan O'Regan's work, uh, Kelly Turner's extraordinary work, uh, and they are in a sense, at the end of a distribution curve of outcomes with cancer, right? And an oncologist, when asked, will typically give you the median uh, survival. And I said, well, if you think about it, the median survival 
is pushed to the left by all the people who don't get decent care, who may not really want to live very much, uh, who, you know, uh, you know, are stressed. And many people, cancer is the least of their problems, you know. So it pushes the survivor to the left. So the kinds of people who engage with your work or engage with our work, from my point of view, the median is a totally inappropriate thing. I always say it's got to be at least the top quartile. And in a way, you can be curious about how far out the distribution curve you can navigate your way, you know. How far and, can you push yourself there? Yeah. Yes, exactly. How how far out you can go. But the the flip side of that that I want to bring in because we've had this conversation is suppose if we make radical remissions the only intention, hmm. a lot of people won't get there. Right. All right. And therefore, if we say, okay, you know, if that's your intention to live as long as possible to experience, which many people would want, but not everybody. Mm -hmm. And so if your intention is to get as far toward a complete radical remission as possible, wonderful. We support you in every way. But if your intention may be, I just want quality of life with my family right now. I don't want to change the way I live. I don't want to do something strenuous. Or if your intention is, you know, I don't know what's best for me in this body. I really surrender myself to whatever that consciousness is. Uh, Perhaps my soul needs something different from a radical remission. So my question to you, I've just sort of put out my philosophy here, which is, Absolutely, you can go for a radical remission. Absolutely, you've made clear at a level no one ever, ever else ever has how possible it is, how you can train to be a coach, how you can help other patients, you know, your mission, uh, uh, and also the research on this to make it more and more real. Uh, but there are also those who will see your work and read it who may have different goals. Their goals may be quality of life with their family. <clears throat> they may be in complete surrender. I mean, one other thing I'll point to, you probably know this, but there was this wonderful study of uh, cancer remissions in Japan mm-hmm. that was done mostly with poor farmers who couldn't afford you know, medical treatment. And the commonality they found, in, as I remember the study, it's been a long time, was that these people said, you know, God's going to decide what happens to me, or, you know, I just surrender completely. And there are people who experience radical remissions. I mean, look at the Lord's, you know, the Lord's cases. So anyway, I'm just kind of creating a, a collage of experiences, and I'd love your, your thoughts. Well, there's so many things to, to comment on with everything you just brought up. Um, one thing I would say is that not everyone wants to be a radical remission survivor. Not everyone, uh, you know, reads my research and is like, yep, I'm going to do all those 10 things and I'm going to do them to the nth degree. And I'm going to be here in 50 years. Sometimes people read my book and they're like, well, that sounds exhausting. No, thank you. Exactly. Exactly. And, 
And that's fine. Um, you know, these aren't these aren't my 10 factors. Um, these are the, the factors that radical remission survivors use. And I'm just the researcher who observed them. So right. I'm really just like the note taker. And I'm saying this is what this group of people does. Um, so certainly there's no obligation or pressure to to behave like this unless unless you want to. Um you know, personally, I, I think there is no failure in death. I think death is uh, the death of the body is just something we're absolutely all going to experience, whether it's at 13 from a car accident or, you know, 16 from cancer, like my dear friend, or if it's 95, um, you know, we're all going to leave these bodies. And so so the idea of treating like death as like this failure, I, I think that's um, that's problematic. I think that's I don't think that view of death serves anyone. To treat death as a failure and that the only way you can, you know, be seen as like a someone who tried hard enough is if you keep living. Well, so much is out of our control. So that's you're sort of setting yourself up for a, a tough win there. If, if your only option of winning is being a radical mission survivor, that you're setting yourself up for a, a, a tough scenario. Right. Because it might happen, but it also might not. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about radical mission survivors is many of them. Yes, they have strong reasons for living, right? Like that's one of the 10 key healing factors is that radical mission survivors identify with why they want to keep living, not why they're afraid of death. That's different, right? That's why am I afraid of this unknown? Um, But if they focus on why do I want to keep living, maybe I love being with my friends and family. Maybe I really want to just write that novel or I really want to travel to 50 countries on my list, right? If they're focusing on the the activities that that they love, right? That they love doing, whether it's, you know, caregiving for a child or climbing Mount Everest, um, they do focus on why they want to stay in a body. So I think the people who really want to check out of these bodies and are just kind of done, um, it's rare for them to become radical mission survivors, right? I think, I think for most people, once you, once your soul says, I'm tired, this place called earth is hard. I'd, I'd like, I'd like to, to pull the injection shoot. Obviously some people do that literally, you know, through suicide, which has got its own, um, sequelae of, of hard, difficult, uh, consequences to that. But, you know, I, we, I used to work in hospice, right. And you could tell when people were like, I'm done. <laughs> and as soon as they, they didn't put their life force towards maintaining a physical body. The life force just left their physical body. And it, it wasn't, that wasn't a sad thing. They were ready to go. And so they let their life force leave their body. I know personally that their life force is now, you know, up, up in this other plane. And at least I believe that I shouldn't say, I know that I, I strongly believe that. Um, but that's why working with hospice, it, it wasn't that hard for me because I was, it was so clear, like, oh, you're in a very uncomfortable body. I can see why you want to leave this. So yeah, just relax and breathe and let your energy leave the body. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there's, there's these kinds of situations, but there are also radical remission survivors, like the, the people in Japan that you're describing. There was also a gentleman front page of the New York times 10 years ago, this man who was diagnosed with stage four cancer and doctor said, there's nothing we can do. And so he said, okay, fine. I'm going to move back to my homeland of Greece. And I'm going to spend my days watching Greek sunsets and drinking Greek wine and, uh, eating wonderful Greek food. And that's what he did. And then of course, this article in the New York times was from 10 years later. And what did he do over there? He, first of all, accepted, 
I have stage four cancers. I'm going to die. That's a given. I surrender to that. And in the meantime, since God will take me whenever he, he or she takes me, um, let me just have, have some fun, you know? And I do see a lot of radical remission survivors who do that, right? They, they, uh, they surrender to the, the concept of, I may check out of here pretty soon, but until I go, I'd like to enjoy myself, please. And something about that combination of surrendering to really accepting the death can happen any day. It's probably, it might happen next week for me, might, you know, and I don't mean to sound flippant, but the people that I study who fall in this category really do get sort of flippant about it. They're like, yep, well, doctor, doc said I was going to die. And so I believed him and off I went to Greece. Um, and, and they get to this surrender and acceptance of death that allows them actually, I think for their whole body and their whole energy system to just take a deep breath and move freely, right? When we talk about Chinese medicine practice practitioners or Ayurvedic practitioners about, you know, moving chi and making sure that the prana doesn't get stuck anywhere and that there aren't any log jams of chi or prana, there's, there's gotta be some unblock, like major unblocking of chi that happens when someone simultaneously says, yes, I hear you. I believe you. I'm going to die any day. And also I'm just going to have fun, right? There, there's something about that emotional state that is so rare, right? It's hard to achieve, but I have interviewed quite a number of people who got to that state of complete surrender to death and complete appreciation for the remaining days that they have, however many that may be. And there's something magical that happens with their bloodstream and their immune system. And honestly, I think that they're just fully out of the stress response. I think that, you know, cortisol just fully leaves the, leaves the building and inflows oxytocin and inflows relaxin and inflow endorphins. And, and when you're, when you're not worried about anything, cause you're going to die in a week and you're watching the Greek sunset and you're, you're, you're eating this Greek salad and you're walking a mile to the market that's number one, a very healthy lifestyle. And number two, your emotional state that you're in, it's sort of like being in that state of post-meditation all the time. I'm a, I'm a regular meditator and I love being in meditation. It can get very, very powerful, but I also love that like first hour after meditation where I'm washing the dishes and I'm just happy to wash the dishes or I'm, you know, cleaning up the house and I'm just, I'm happy to be cleaning up the house. And that that state doesn't always last too long, but it's lovely. And I, I sort of envision, you know, this man who moved to Greece, assuming he was going to die. I think he just sort of was in that state all day, every day. And I think that's probably a very healing state to live in. Personally, I think I think scientifically we know that, right? There's nothing. I mean, oxytocin has been shown in petri dishes to to reduce the number of breast and ovarian cancer cells. So there there is power in these in these hormones. There's healing power in them. Speaking of which, what about love? Well, love is such a powerful word. I think it encompasses so many other words. I think that I think that the biochemical state that your body is in when you're feeling love is similar to when you're feeling gratitude, is similar to when you're laughing, is similar to when you're crying happy tears, is similar to when you're feeling um like you want to help someone in need. The word love is so, so big to me. I it's think it. 
So let's distinguish two parts. There, I mean, there are many, many dimensions of love, clearly. But um, a lot of people say that love's the greatest healer to be found. There's a song, actually, that has those words in it. Uh, so there, there are many dimensions of it. I mean, there's the love of a mother for a child. And God knows, in the Cancer Health Program, one of the most common things that mothers with breast cancer Young mothers with breast cancer say, is I want to be around for my child. So there's that intention to be there for the child. Um, there's a compassionate love. You want to be of service in the world. Uh, but there's also falling in love, right? And uh, so falling in love is a double-edged sword. You can have people who fall in love. There's a separation and divorce. It doesn't end well. And boom, Breast cancer is something else shows up remarkably quickly, you know. So love and loss are, but uh, but also I've seen people do extraordinarily well with advanced cancers when they fell in love with someone. So as you say, it's a huge word. We could spend a lot of time unpacking it, but um, I'm just curious how you've come uh, to hold love in its different manifestations and its role, sometimes complex, in radical remission? Well, that's a great question. And no one's ever asked me that before. I had an oncologist who is, um, I was speaking to once about, you know, these 10 healing factors. And he said, okay, you know, diet, herbs and supplements, exercise, got it. And he was, all the the other seven, I would just call that stress reduction. And I said, huh, okay. I think because I came to this research as a, as a counselor, right? A trained uh, in clinical social work. I was really um, looking for the nuances of emotion and looking for the nuances of of stress reduction, right? Um, and so one of the 10 common healing factors for my research is increasing positive emotions. And a different one is increasing your social support. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like this oncologist said, he would just would have lumped all of those together and said, well, you're reducing stress. Um, but I do think that the nuances are important because the actions that you take to get to those emotional states are different, right? So learning how to receive help from others and how to increase your social support, your friend, your, your love and support from friends and family. That is a skill set. And you might find, and I've seen cancer patients who work on their own happiness. They go to their yoga class, they watch their comedy videos, they pet the cat, but they stay isolated and they say, I'm going to do this myself. And I'm not going to tell anyone what I have. And, and, and I'm just, I'm just going to tough this out myself. And by doing that, they are actually cutting themselves off from a healing source of a powerful source of healing, which is the support from family and friends. That's not to say that you need to shout from the rooftops your diagnosis, um, but telling a few key people and allowing them to support and help you through that process has been shown to you know be incredibly healing, right? Like loneliness can cause you to die uh, twice as quickly when you have cancer and having a strong social network can help you live twice as long. And I'm not just throwing those words out. Those are actual studies that have been done. And um, so it's it's incredibly powerful, this idea of, of love and all the different things it encompasses. And 
going through loss and grief, mm-hmm. if you were to to lose love, right, to lose lose that partnership, you know, we we see we see that with um, what is it, a broken heart syndrome, right? Like widows whose whose uh, partners had heart attacks, they're you know what is it, two times as likely to die in the next two years, mm-hmm. and they call that broken heart syndrome. I think I think what that shows me, Michael, and certainly informed my research and allowed me to observe what these people were doing um, and not be judgmental or skeptical and be like, well, how could, you know, how could so much of their healing be mental, emotional, right? I think, I think a different, I think a medical doctor who hadn't been trained in counseling um, probably would have been more skeptical about what they were hearing in the interviews that I, that I was conducting. But what I was hearing was it's emotional. It's so emotional. So much of this is about dealing with the emotions, the emotions of fear, the emotions of love, the emotions of feeling like you're a burden, the emotions of spirituality and intuition. And um, so, so much of a radical remission is mental emotional, right? If you're saying seven out of 10 are mental emotional, that's 70% of the healing job is mental emotional. It, to me, it just comes down to the, the absolute fact that the mind and body are hundred percent connected and science knows that. And we've known that for over 50 years, you know? Um, absolutely. Uh, no, the literature on social support and its impact on health and longevity in general is incredibly powerful, leaving yeah. or anything else. Um, this is the time where I should definitely ask you to go over the 10 factors that you found are central in radical remission. That sounds good. Um, and then I, I did see we had a question and I know it's coming up on question time. So happy to take the questions as well. So the 10 common factors that I found uh, to be common among radical remission survivors are um, three physical ones, radically changing your diet, taking herbs and supplements, which by the way, that's as uh, as common as it gets. They're all taking different ones and uh, exercise, daily exercise or movement. And then the other seven are mental, emotional, spiritual. Um, so three of the three of those seven I call like the foundational ones, because if you put put them in place first, it's easier to do all the others. And that's figuring out your strong reasons for living, increasing your social support network, and getting to a place of empowerment of not feeling helpless, but feeling like you can do something to contribute to your healing journey. And then the the last four are, in no particular order, increasing positive emotions, releasing suppressed emotions, that's anything you're holding on to, grief, sadness, fear, et cetera, Uh, developing your intuition, which is uh, an interesting topic always, and then deepening your spiritual connection practice, whatever that may be. And that could include a secular practice such as gardening, running, or meditation. Wonderful. Those Uh are the uh, I, I, as you know, uh, Dean Ornish, who did the remarkable work on uh, on uh, reversing coronary artery disease, his list is diet, exercise, stress reduction, and finding love and support. So, you know, he does it that way. And I'm going to ask Nancy Hepp, our, our senior researcher and project manager, to come on and join us for a minute. And Nancy, could you come on and... Um, uh, put up on the screen um, the R7 healing practices so we can just look at those with Kelly and note the overlaps that um, that that we are so aware of. So, so the first five practices that Kelly mentioned are 
synchronous with five of our seven healing practices. So we have eating well, moving more, managing stress. Then we add sleeping well, creating a healing environment, sharing love and support. And right in the center, Kelly, we put exploring what matters now, which uh, connects deeply to your point about intuition, among many other things. And strong reasons for living. Exactly. Exactly. But the other thing that we do, um, uh, which I think is, I mean, you you talked about herbs and supplements. And um, uh, Nancy, can you uh, flip to our herbs and supplements um, uh, database, which uh, we continue to build out? But um, uh, Kelly, as you know, I believe, our... Uh, Actually, an interesting thing, there was a study that came out recently that reviewed all the sources of information on integrative therapies on the web. And our previous site, Beyond Conventional Cancer Therapies, scored the highest of the available sites. I'm not surprised. Your sites are amazing, Michael. Yeah. So, Nancy, uh, could you pick one uh, for us to look at and see if, have people see uh, what we've done in terms of really differentiated uh, approaches to these um, these therapies. Okay, I will pick one that we are not highlighting in our next webinar because okay. uh, those we will go into in quite some depth. I will highlight turmeric and curcumin, which are widely used and have good research behind them. They don't have the strongest effects, but they are uh, well-researched. And this is a readily available supplement. It's not very expensive and the risk of harm is uh, low. So I will will just say, you can see here that we score things on seven different attributes. How well does it treat cancer? And by that, we mean how well does it contribute to improved treatment outcomes, uh, reduced metastasis, reduced tumor growth, improved survival, and then optimizing your body train. How, how well does it just in general increase your body's ability to uh, live, be healthy, and to be resilient? Um, And then the others are pretty self-explanatory managing side effects, reducing your risk of cancer. How how much, how often, how widely is it used by integrative oncology experts? What is its safety and its affordability and access? And Nancy, can you demonstrate how someone who's interested can actually go to these studies on which uh, our, uh, our ratings are based? Right. So so this is just the top level rating. If you were to go and uh, say, well, what does that mean? What does a three rating mean for treating cancer? We have our summary evidence here. We say it has modest evidence of this among this population. And we, we define for you what modest evidence means, except that uh, I will show you preliminary evidence so that you, you know, what does this mean? Because different researchers have different definitions for, for these things. And if you say, okay, well, you say it has modest evidence of better tumor response, but how do I know that? Uh, you can go all the way down to the level of 
finding the research that we base this on. And under treating cancer, we where we say it has uh, preliminary evidence of something, you, we will show you in this study, which you can find through the footnote, this, this is what they found. And in breast cancer, these are the two studies that we looked at together that led to this conclusion and so on. So everything on the site is based on very solid, very shareable, very peer-reviewed evidence. We don't force that at you at once. We start with that top-level rating. If you want to go deeper, we explain that. If you want to go even deeper, you can get there. Great, Nancy. And could you take us back to those seven healing practices? You're listening to a TNS conversation with Kelly A. Turner and host Michael Lerner. So, Kelly, just I just wanted to do that little dive because you mentioned supplement. I love it. Yeah. Uh, but um, so, again, I love your 10. Um, and, th- and that's what you got from your um, the people in your study. And uh, this is more... I, I would say this this was more, in a certain way, impressionistic, and that this is what we felt we had learned from our direct experience, and we wanted to go beyond Dean Ornish's four diet, exercise, stress reduction, social support, and we wanted to put exploring what matters now right at the heart of it, because that's the one where and you and I just had this conversation before that if somebody says about you know going for a radical remission that sounds like a lot of work I just want to I accept my doctor's uh, prognosis I just want to go enjoy myself that would be exploring what matters now right and absolutely and our view which I think you share is that that is the central question that before you decide what conventional therapies to do, before you decide what complementary therapies to do, before you decide on a rigorous approach, you really want to figure out what matters to you. And that goes to the intuition issue, which, as you say, is a profound issue because you can, at a certain level, you can say, what does the ego want? What does the soul want? And from what dimension of myself do I want to decide what matters now? What are your thoughts, Kelly? Um, yeah, I think as a researcher, I have to present the 10 uh, common factors as you know, equally important. And the reason for that is because we don't, we don't know yet as researchers which one of these 10 or which, which two or three are more important than the rest. We won't know that until we do, you know, like 40 years of clinical trials. Mm-hmm. So I'm always very clear in my books um, and in any talks I give, you know, we don't know yet, you know, maybe two of these don't actually matter that the person who heals thinks they mattered, but maybe they didn't, you know, maybe they, they were just fluff. Maybe they didn't actually contribute to cellular healing. I, d- I personally doubt that. I think enough studies have been done on these 10 factors individually to show that doing each of these on their own leads to immune strengthening. So to say that that any of these 10 factors aren't important, it goes against what we found scientifically, which is all of these have been shown to significantly increase the immune system. Um, So 
I definitely always say, I don't know which of these is most important or more important than the others. So here are the 10, right? But when I'm teaching a workshop, you're darned right that I start with strong reasons for living. (laughs) And that's because to me, it just, it just intuitively makes sense. If you're going to embark on this intensive healing journey, right? And radical remission survivors say that healing became their full-time job. And that goes to, by the way, a social justice piece, which is, you know, you need to be able to have the time. Many of these are free, right? I mean, all seven of the emotional, mental, spiritual ones are free. Um, Moving daily is something you can do for free. Diet and herbs are the ones that cost money. But you, you need the time to do the eight free ones, even if they don't cost any money. And a lot of people in our society simply don't have the time to work on these 10 factors or on your core seven. And so I just, I do want to, you know, mention that, that there is this there big social justice problem with even achieving radical remission. Um, but when I am teaching a workshop on radical remission, wherein we always say, we're not promising you're going to get a radical remission by doing these 10 factors. We're promising you're going to strengthen your immune system. So we always start with that disclaimer. And I start with strong reasons for living because if you know why you want to stay in these bodies, it's a lot easier to change how you're treating your body, right? If you're focused on why you want to keep living and what brings you joy, then exercising every day suddenly isn't so much of a chore or taking that time to make that kale salad isn't so much of a big deal because you're focused on, well, I'm doing this because of X, Y, Z. So absolutely. I I personally think that finding your why, your strong reasons for living is essential it's essential for the journey to be successful. Um, however you define success. Uh, Bob said my incurable cancer had an 18 month to five year survivor Five That was 15 years ago and talks more about that and how, uh, strong will to live is his favorite chapter in radical remissions. Uh, and, um, and I would say, Bob, if you haven't already, please, please, uh, submit your story to our website, radicalremission.com, because, I'm sure that Bob's survival here is not um, showing up correctly in the National Cancer Registry, which is how we get our cancer statistics. Because if he was had an 18-month to five-year survival rate, that means he was diagnosed in the medical system. He may have even had some conventional medicine. Um, but if he if he did if he even went back to his doctor to say, "Hey, you know, 15 years later, I'm still here." Um, if the doctor said he's in remission, that remission will be attributed to whatever conventional medicine he got 15 years ago. So they will say, oh, chemo worked, right? So um, I encourage you, Bob, to, to submit your healing story to, to my site so that my research team and I can really you know, um, record it. So speaking of submitting uh, stories to your, to your site, uh, how do you and your research team continuously evaluate the continuing increase in in case studies? Is it is it an active, um, how do you do it? Is it an active thing? Can you ask the database different kinds of questions? What are you doing there? Well, for us, we're just interested in collecting them. And, you know, we'll email back and forth with the person if they didn't answer a question uh, completely enough for us or if we need to see their medical records. So from a research standpoint, we're just happy with what comes in, but we also wanted our research to be instantly of service. And um, so for, uh, 
with that goal in mind, um, that anything that people submit to our site is also instantly searchable by the general public. So you can go to our site and say, share my story. If you have a healing story to share, or you can say, find a healing story. And the goal there is to, to be able to narrow filter down the radical remission cases that have at least come in through the website. They, they come in through other avenues as well, but at least the ones that come in through the website are searchable. So if you want to look just at breast cancer um, survival stories, you can choose breast cancer. If you want to filter it with stage four breast cancer, because that's what you're dealing with. And so really you want to just see those stories to, to um, get hopeful. Then you have 1500 plus cases. Well, many of those 1500 are the ones that are in medical journals. So we haven't, we haven't fully converted all of them. I mean, basically what I need is I need like an army of volunteers. Right. To put those, those, you know, what is it? 1300 now that are, that are just in the, in the medical journals. We also need to put a link to those on our database so that it would be fully functional. But I think probably what would be best is if I keep collecting these ones that aren't published in journals. Mm -hmm. Um, And by the way, to your listeners, the way to get a case published in a journal is really hard. a, A person who's healed can't do it. They have to convince their doctor whom you probably walked away from to spend like anywhere from 10 to 30 hours writing up your very detailed case report and submitting it to a journal all for free. So a lot of people understandably don't find a doctor who's willing to do that. So I'm really interested in capturing, you know, the cases that, that go unpublished, whereas IONS is very focused on um, documenting the cases that are published by doctors and bless you to all those doctors who take the time to, to submit those cases um, it's really, it's, it's such a gift. So hopefully someday IONS and my database can merge so that we can see all the cases together in one place. That, that would be. Continuing to do that. Um, I think IONS is still working on stuff. I was in, uh, I was in conversation with Josh Weiss, their head researcher for the project a few years ago before the pandemic. I should, I should reach out to them now and see what the status is. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bob posted another question. I love that you explain you interviewed thousand oncologists with this opening question, doctor, have you ever had a patient that was terminal and for some reason is completely healthy? The response was yes. Then you followed up with, did you document this? And they, they all said no. Why do you think doctors are reluctant to document these results? Um, that's a great question. I would say, I don't think it's been a thousand oncologists that I've talked to. Um, but certainly every oncologist I've talked to, I always say, have you had a radical remission case in your, in your practice ever? you like during your doctoring career, have you seen one of these cases? And if they've been in practice for five years, the answer is always yes. And if they've been practiced for 20 years, the answer is usually like, yeah, five of them, four or five of them. And then I say, well, did you submit a case report to a, a medical journal? And they're like, well, no. And Bob, you're asking me to guess why. Um, I love doctors. I think they have the best of intentions and really stressful schedules. I think that probably the why is because they're not paid to take the time to write up a case report and they didn't do anything, quote unquote, to help that person heal. So they didn't contribute to that person's healing. So I think they almost feel like, well, that's not my case to tell because it's not, I didn't do anything, right? I didn't help them heal. That's why I say my heart really goes out to the oncologists who do take the time in a very, you know, humble, egoist way to take this, this case of inexplicable healing that's sitting in front of them that they had nothing to do with 
and to take the time to volunteer their time to write up all the biomedical facts in the way that the journals needed to be written. And then to, you know, usually they have to pay 50 bucks just to submit it, just for the honor of submitting it for potential publication. So we're really asking our doctors and we're asking them to do this at night when they probably want to be with their partners and their kids. So I don't blame them at all for not wanting to write up a case report that they had nothing to do with. Um, I do think that we just need, you know, a more standardized way to, to report these cases. And maybe someone listening who's connected to the National Cancer Registry will, um, you know, reach out and we can just add something to the National Cancer Registry website. And then instead of them coming to radical remission, they all go there, submit it there, and then it really becomes official. That would be wonderful. I would be happy to pass the pass the torch on to the National Cancer Registry. You know, Kelly, it's funny to be having this conversation because uh, many years ago, I was asked by the Office of Technology Assessment of the U.S. Congress, which was then doing really good work, uh, to be the principal consultant on a study called Unconventional Cancer Treatments, which you probably know. And uh, so they did this big survey and Actually, the, they, it was largely guided by my colleagues who were part of our, uh, our conferences called the Symington Foundation Conferences on New Directions in Cancer Care, bringing the leadership of the field together, uh, probably for the first time. But in any case, the OTA report came out with the view that the best way to study this was best case analysis, and that the best case analysis was that physicians should submit uh, their best cases, uh, you know, to a to a registry of some kind. And of course, what you're talking about is continuing that, you know, that process of uh, of best case analysis. But your uh, two two questions, and then we're going to come to the questions here. Um, you have a whole ecosystem of wonderful. Uh, projects and services. So not only the docu-series and collecting cases and your books and your lectures, but you're also uh, training people uh, to do this work and uh, helping cancer patients find the people you train. So could you sort of give us a synopsis of all the moving pieces in your system? Sure. Um, it, you know, it all sort of comes from what people write in and ask us for. So I'm, I'm a writer, storyteller. So writing the books and doing the docuseries, I'm happy to do. Um, I'm actually, I never actually wanted to be a teacher. Um, it's just not, it's not, you know, a role that's, that lights me up so much. It makes me a little nervous. So um, when we kept getting asked to give workshops and, you know, will you fly here? Will you come teach here? And, you know, my baby was born, uh, three months before my first book came out. So I wasn't flying anywhere. So it was sort of, you know, everyone was asking for me to teach this workshop and I, I'm not a natural born teacher. Um, and I had little babies. And so that's why we created the online course. Cause I said, I can't be everywhere at once people. I I'll film, I'll film myself teaching this once. And so that's what our online course is. But then of course people said, well, we love to be in person and I love to be in person too. And there's nothing, I mean, your Commonweal retreats, I mean, they're, they're famous, Michael. They're just, you know, when I was at UCSF, people would, patients would come back absolutely transformed. You, you have no idea the power and the ripple effects that you guys at Commonweal have created across this world. It's, it's really beautiful. 
so there's power in gathering together in person. And because um, I'm just one person, I decided to train people how to teach this work, this research in a responsible way. Because that's important to me, that the research is taught in a responsible way. So now we have teachers from all over the world and they they give radical remission workshops, you know, in their in their communities, which is great. And um, then people who went to the workshops would go up to the teachers and say, well, you know, will you coach me privately? I really could use some help. You know, I don't want it to just end with this weekend. And so then the teachers came back to me and said, well, can I coach people privately? And so I gave them a little extra training on how to do coaching, which of course was based on my counseling degree. And then there we go. We've got an, a little a community of people who are teaching this research in a way that I feel comfortable with. And most importantly, hopefully we're meeting the needs of the cancer patients, right? Because People on the night of diagnosis will watch the docu-series, I hope. And then that first week, they'll read the books. And then from their hospital room, they can take the online course. But at some point, you need the community, right? So whether you go to Commonweal or you go to the healing circles, you should tell everybody right now about your healing circles. Yeah, I was going to say, there's so many things to talk about. The healingcirclesglobal.org does uh, circles for all kinds of situations, including loneliness and loss of a partner, but specifically for cancer. And in fact, we started with cancer. Diana Lindsay and I started with cancer. So uh, it, yeah, it's, a, it's one of the most important dimensions of our work. Thank you for asking, Kelly. So let's go to the questions that are definitely lining up here. Our colleague and friend, Erica Rayner-Horn. Hi, Hi Kelly. Erica. I'm <laughs> wonderful. I know, I know, Erica. It's so great to see you. I see your name here. Uh, 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 the process of choosing my healing path felt the most crucial. I already knew I had to believe in my treatment protocol in order for it to help me. I meditated during chemo. Uh, the drugs were transformed by a healing potion. Any comments? And let's just look at a couple together and then uh, Kelly can respond. Tony, uh, I have multiple myeloma. My docs keep telling me that I will probably stay in remission for four to five years. I find myself partially believing him. Other parts of me say no. Um, and how can I develop a mindset of not letting that into my mind? So uh, those are two uh, questions and comments, Kelly. Wonderful. Well, I'll, I'll address Erica's first. Hello, Erica. Um, Erica is a wonderful meditation teacher for those of you who don't know her work um, much more than meditation as well. She does cancer healing retreats and everything. Um, I love Erica that you're telling everyone how you really feel like you had to believe that your treatment was helping you, including the chemo. I would say, absolutely. That is, you are, you are acting like a radical remission survivor by doing that. Um, you know, the, the two sort of the two coins of the emotional work of radical remission survivors is increasing positive emotions and releasing suppressed emotions. And what you did there, and then of course, increasing your spiritual connection practice. So you really did three things at once there by meditating during chemo about how you believed the drugs were helping you and they were transforming into a healing potion. Um, there is something about, I think, I, I mean, I would love to you know, perhaps hear uh, Cynthia Lee's take on this, but I think there's something energetically going on when you are allowing a treatment to come into your body that you don't want. I think there's, 
there's something not so productive about that. Because if you're getting the chemo sort of under duress and you're you're saying, okay, fine, I'll let it enter my veins, but I, I think it's poison, right? Um, chemo's strong. It's going to do its job. So it's not like, it's not like you're going to um, not make it efficacious by thinking that. But I do think that there's, there's some harm there, energetically speaking, by resisting something that is happening to you. And the more that we can um, get patients to a place where they find a way to be um, receptive of what is happening to them, it's just going to have a better outcome. You're going to have fewer side effects and you're going to have more efficacy. So what Erica did there was, you know, do her mental gymnastics, whatever she needed to do to get to a place where she didn't see chemo as negative, but she saw it as this very powerful healing potion. And it is powerful, strong medicine. I mean, chemo really can do some incredible work inside the body. And the more you can get to a place of acceptance and peace around what's being done to you, actually the, the fewer side effects you'll have from it and the, the more the more efficacious it will be. So it and, and we have studies on this, right? Um so you just, you want to get to a place where you are feeling relaxed, you're out of fight or flight and you're into rest and repair. And if you can get into that space as much as you can, you're going to have a better, you're going to have a smoother ride. You're still going to have the ride, but it'll just be smoother. So I think it's beautiful, Erica, um, what you did. And then for Tony's question, um, I love that you say you're in deep remission. Oh, that's such a, such a great phrase. I'm in deep remission. Um, but yet you're saying you're having trouble believing that your doc says that you'll um, stay in remission for four or five years. Um, I would say that radical remission survivors absolutely vacillate between fear and doubt and hope and peace. And the fact that you're vacillating isn't necessarily a problem. I would say it's normal. Um, radical remission survivors don't believe that they have to be happy and stress-free all the time. And I, I really want to like shout that one from the rooftops because this, this sort of idea that if you want to heal yourself, you have to be like happy all the time and you can't have any stress. Well, that's impossible and unrealistic. And it's also not what radical remission survivors experience. They experience, you know, days, if not weeks of tremendous fear. They just make sure they take at least five minutes a day to short circuit that and to get another chemistry running for five minutes. So whether it's five minutes of Qigong or five minutes of a comedy tape or five minutes of going for a run or five minutes of playing with a little kid or a little dog, um, you know, just to take a break from that fear and doubt every day is, is probably just the most important thing that radical mission survivors have taught me. Kelly, this is so wonderful. We're getting right close to the end here. Uh, I do want to mention briefly that you're also engaged with a research project with Harvard. Could you just say a word about that? Absolutely. Um, that was another thing that happened after my first book came out is that um, some two different sets of researchers reached out to me. One was a group of researchers from uh, Silicon Valley, biotech company, and they wanted to study the blood of radical mission survivors. And I said, awesome. Yes. I've been waiting for this, please. I'm not a biochemist. I don't know how to study their blood. And they spent a lot of money and resources flying out to these people's homes, taking their blood, putting it on dry ice, and then whipping it back to the Silicon Valley and then whipping it in their machines. And they found 
unique antibodies in radical remission survivors' blood that they're now trying to, you know, make into synthetic medicines. So we'll see. Um, they're working on it, but that was exciting. And then the other exciting thing was this researcher from at the time it was Tufts, and she's now switched over to Harvard, um, who really wanted to look at well, what what happens to cancer patients if we do teach them these nine things? And so we're we're just at the tail end of a pilot study where we looked at people who went through my workshop, the, or the radical permission workshop, and we're looking at, did they have any improvement in quality of life in their diets? Um, we weren't able to do any biometric analysis for this pilot study, but the hope is that the pilot study will lead to a clinical trial where we can look at something biomedical like telomere length or you know natural killer cells, that sort of thing. So, you know, the idea is to really start to study, well, what impact do these 10 factors have in conjunction with conventional medicine, right? Like a group that just gets standard of care compared to a group that gets standard of care plus the 10 factors. That's probably going to be realistically the first clinical trial. The second clinical trial I would love to see someday is similar to what Dean Ornish did, which is where he took a group of people who were allowed to watch and wait stage one prostate cancer patients. And he, some of them just watched and waited. And some of them, instead of watching and waiting, did his program, which is, you know, very similar about these lifestyle changes. And of course, his group of people um, doing his program did wonderfully, didn't need chemotherapy, their cancer shrunk. The other group, I think like half of them had to stop watching and waiting during the three-month period because their cancer was growing too quickly and they had to get on chemotherapy. So um, those are the kind of studies that I hope that our pilot study will lead to. Wonderful. Well, Kelly Turner, it is such a joy, uh, and uh, I have such gratitude to you for uh, for being with us. Cynthia just uh, sent us a note. Thank you, Kelly. You have to read it. It's beautiful. Yeah, beautiful exploration. Uh, I think it's useful to understand that there are those who arrive at radical remission by willpower and then those who arrive by surrender. They are very different experiences. I've experienced both. Former is more manageable, but complex and laborious. The latter is far simpler, but we have to walk into what scares us. Uh, and um, Laura, never have deeper words, deeper words of truth been spoken, Cynthia. That is yeah. that is exactly who I study. I half the people I study are are there, and they're like, I'm doing these ten things, and I'm not leaving. And then the other half get to where Cynthia got, which was, I need to let go of the outcome here. No, that's really wonderful. Thank you, Cynthia. Thank you so much for being with us. What a a beautiful, enlivening conversation. I'm so grateful. I just have a sense of deep partnership with you and all our colleagues who are working in the same direction uh, to create a situation where integrative cancer care is the standard of practice where, you know, that what you're offering is one of the first things out of an oncologist's mouth. You know, figure out what you really want here. There are different paths. You know, just it would be so powerful if the oncology community looked at the science, understood the science, and projected hope and support for integrative care. And really, your work is astonishingly important to that. So. So many of us feel such deep. And now I'd like to turn it back over to Nancy Hep, who will tell us about what's coming up for Cancer Choices, and then Kira Epstein. 
Nancy? Thank you. We will be picking up and continuing several of the threads that have been brought up in today's conversation. Next Tuesday, October 4th, we're having a learning circle focused on healing and curing. And this will be led by our senior clinical consultant, Laura Pohl, who has 40 years of experience as a nurse in oncology and palliative care. Uh, this will be a small conversational gathering. It's not a webinar. You will be interacting uh, with other people in this. And if the group is large, we'll break into smaller groups. So everybody will have an action and an ability to participate actively. And then in November, we're doing a webinar on the three surprising top picks for cancer aspirin, vitamin D, and melatonin. And in coordination with that, our learning circle in November will be on uh, the process that we use in assessing supplements and other complementary therapies, and also the, the aspects of trustworthiness and credibility. And we'll take a deep dive on that. Well, thank you, Michael and Kelly and Nancy and everybody at Cancer Choices. Uh, these are such great resources and conversations. Um, just a reminder, if you want to rewatch or re-listen to the conversation or if you want to share it with others, we'll have the recordings produced. And if you're on the New School or the Cancer Choices mailing list, or if you follow us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube, you'll be notified when the recordings are posted. And again, we hope you'll join us for the November 10th webinar. Thank you all so much for being with us at the New School at Commonweal today. We'll see you next time. Thank you, friends. Thanks to all. Uh, we look forward to the next time. Special thanks to Kelly Turner for her extraordinary work. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Kelly A. Turner and host Michael Lerner, co-presented with CancerChoices.org. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. Our theme music was performed by Debbie Daly. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening.